0: Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats.
1: Hello, Kara. Hi, Jordan. (laughs) Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney. Today, we're gonna to be talking about your new publication um, with Nat Geo called Good Kings. I have the the um, summary here. To let me know what you think. I'm sure you've already heard it, but in a new era where democracies around the world are threatened or crumbling, best-selling author Karakuni turns to five ancient Egyptian pharaohs, Khufu, Senwazir III, Akhenaten, Ramses II, and Taharqa to understand why so many so often give up power to the few and what it can mean for our future.
0: Yeah, it's a big topic. Big topic. I, I bit off a lot. And um yeah. So what what was the question? I just what did do
1: you do? <laughs> <laughs> Well first we're gonna talk about your writing process, then yeah. we'll get into the intro. Okay. Um, but so I guess we can start with, you know, how'd you choose the topic for the new book? Okay. What inspired it? Yeah. So you know, um, you were writing about women a lot. So yeah. you know, what are we switching to now? We're still focusing on the patriarchy, but in a different kind of lens.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very similar to the last book, when women ruled the world, but it's just coming at it from the other angle. So if when women ruled the world is a, a way of talking about the patriarchy by looking at female rulers, this is a way of talking about the patriarchy by talking about the patriarchy <laughs> and looking at the directly. male rulers. Yeah, and um, as for the topic and how it came about, I have a really good relationship with my editor at National Geographic Books, uh, Hillary Black, and when I was doing all of the discussions and rollout for When Women Ruled the World, we started talking about what the next book should be. And I had a couple of ideas. And I I was interested in doing something on authoritarianism, doing something on how the ancient Egyptians excelled at presenting their rule as not just necessary, but the only moral possibility out there only option, the last best hope for all of us. And that's why I named it the good kings. And that's what I'm poking at the whole time. Because what, what government that wants to take control from people, what they always do is they try to make it an equivalent of values, a discussion Mm -hmm. of how we will be your good fathers, we will do right by you. And that's exactly the kind of ideology that I'm, I'm trying to mess with. So it was, um, it was a fun perspective. I didn't expect it to be so uh, very interesting and joyful to mm-hmm. write, and um, and you know we we work with these kings all the time. I mean, I didn't pick any kings that nobody knows about. These are these are all the big names.
1: And it was it was interesting to read through and see, you know, stuff we had talked about in class, but just a re kind of writing of the you know very stereotypical narrative that we you know you find in the history books that we teach the undergrads yeah. and kind of. You know here's a new perspective on looking at the, all this material in a different way
0: it meant that i didn't have to worry as much about the research mm-hmm. like if i'm going to write about the female king Tawasret, i really need to get in there and research because it's not my area of expertise i don't do the late middle kingdom i don't know a lot about the 12th dynasty and i'm i'm looking at a time period that is far afield from where i feel comfortable yeah but talking about pyramids, we always have to talk about pyramids. They make us talk about pyramids. It's just what, even though it's also thousands of years different from what I do, separated from what I do, but it's uh, something that I have to think about when I teach and, um, the Ramsid period, no different Akhenaten, no different. So, so the third, I guess was a little bit harder. Again, I felt a little on the back foot with, with that chapter. Um, but it was. It was,
1: but um, it's still like going against these, you know, traditional narratives that we have of what did Sodwazer do with the the elites and, and. But that was how you
0: read it. Where I would open it up with, "Here's the story that we're given," that and then and kind then, of mess with
1: it. Or a lot of things were, you know, a lot of viewpoints you took were instead of viewing this as, you know, a show of strength, it's actually a show of weakness. Yeah. And you can take the same evidence that some people argue and say, oh, Khufu's so great, he could build this giant pyramid or Sunwaza was so strong, he brought all the elites to the capital and it's it's no, it's actually a show of weakness that like they were forced to do this or they were, you know, grappling at straws to try to get some power. Each
0: one of those kings was chosen because they're so well known, because they're a part of our zeitgeist and our, our cultural memory and our discussions. Each one of them happens at the height, the apex of one of these uh, swells of power if everything is an up and down uh, Mm -hmm. of this 3000 year time span. And it was so interesting going through all five of them and seeing how each one that's at the tippy top is right there, ready to have the roller coaster go down. (laughs) Yes. And so each one of them was manufacturing a system that was ready to fail each and every one. And that was something that I didn't expect. I don't know why I didn't Mm -hmm. expect to write my way into that. Um, We think of the height of something, not as the beginning of the end, but Mm -hmm. as the The end of the beginning. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And so to look at it from, especially in this apocalyptic zeitgeist that we're all living in, that's the only way that I could look at it. Mm -hmm. And it was um, particularly interesting to see the more Baroque, the more denialism, the more ideological, moral uh, mm-hmm. things got, the, the more everything was just about to collapse. Yep. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Thinking about your, your writing process, how does it differ from writing, you know, an academic article or book? You're currently working on some right now. Yes, I am. Do you enjoy one more over the other?
0: Uh, they're so different. The way that I write these two things, either the trade book or the academic book, um the academic book starts with the footnote yeah right and you know you're working on your dissertation right now you're you're in the weeds and reading all of these other people's work and then i mean how is your process working on the academic your first academic book i.e the dissertation
1: so typically i would usually do a bunch of research first and then write but i'm trying a new strategy of kind of researching and writing in tandem so it's more fresh yeah because i find when you're writing and then you have to go you know Go grab this footnote, or yeah. oh, I read this thing a couple of days ago. Let me go like re-find it. It breaks it up too much. So I'm trying to
0: academic do it books together. Are so derivative of the scholarship that has already yes. been written, and you spend
1: like hours on citations.
0: Yes, that you end you forget. So much of academic writing is so stultifying because mm-hmm. we forget that we have a point to make <laughs> because we're so busy citing and, and saying what somebody said else is saying
1: that our point caveat becomes this tiny
0: defensive weak uh fearful sort of point and so i'm not saying that my academic writing is necessarily like that but everybody's academic writing is to some extent like that because it's part of the nature of how it is expected to be done and needs to be done and how you protect yourself as you're doing it
1: i think there's a difference to a um, early career scholars versus yeah you have a little bit more, I don't
0: have to footnote as much as you do
1: that, or just you feel maybe <laughs> a little bit more freer to make yeah. big claims and.
0: Yeah, Um. But, but anyway, in answer to your question, not that I don't use data in my trade books, I do, yeah. but my academic books, our data first and then i take that and i analyze it i just posted that spider-man meme which was really that was really funny what is it he's like tell me the truth you can't just mess with the data you have to analyze it she's like no (laughs) so that's that's where um i I do it differently when I'm writing the trade book, much to the chagrin of my, my future self when I actually have to do the footnotes. Mm-hmm. But I write from the idea first. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'm like, oh, crap, I need to footnote this. And I'm relying on 20 years of 20 some years of knowledge. academic knowledge and a and, uh, foundation. So I'm like, oh, I can say that. And then I'm like, oh, I should really footnote that. Who said that? What's the latest, most reasonable, mm-hmm. most accessible thing that I could use as a citation for that point? and then i'm i'm doing the footnotes after the fact which that i always tell more, you guys never readable, to do yeah so i start with the know, big idea first yeah. and then i put in the weeds instead of the you, weeds and then the big idea for the academic do you have
1: one. like an outline because it's very you know you have a very good flow and there's you know a good thought process as you're going through it and when you bring stuff up it fits you know it doesn't there's i did
0: not outline it
1: so it's just kind of your Well, brain.
0: Well, you you you're asking this question, but you know the answer because you were there when I outlined it. What's your your
1: notes file?
0: Well, I have a notes file, but there's also I did this particular book in the context of a class that Mm -hmm. Jordan was one of my TAs for. And this class was an Egyptian religion class that I forced my book proposal into. And then on the fly during a pandemic over Zoom, my first Zoom class Mm -hmm. ever. I would tape ten weeks of lectures, yep. and and I just was like, okay, it I'm gonna. So long ago, doesn't it? Oh well, it was, I was long just ago.
1: Remembering, and I was like, that was. That was 2020. It was um, March it was 2020, spring. Yeah. spring, started in March, in March Amy. to June.
0: Yeah, yeah. And now it's it's a year and a half ago. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and so it was completely on the fly, yep. but I also made it a. It, it came from lecture notes. So then I took that lecture, which was recorded, and I handed it to my trusty sidekick, Amber Myers Wells, Amber, who um who then transcribed it. And thank God she can understand the ancient Egyptian words and the vocabulary and the names. So she actually sat, sat there and transcribed it. Poor thing. And then gave it back to me, and she cleaned it up. You know, put it. You know, took out the ums and the uhs. and you know, we don't need that kind of a transcription. And then I I got this mass of pages. And I'm like, Oh, shit. Okay, here we go. Now I have to write it into yeah. something that makes sense. That's interesting. And that was a mess.
1: But it going was going kind- from yes. notes to prose. And yes. Yeah.
0: And so I just had I, each word document was like, that transcription was at the bottom. And then I had to start with like, I had to start afresh with a new yeah. thing. And then I kind of pull things up and shove things Re-get down. It. And you come up, you go down and you get rewritten and you get discarded. And it was just kind of a really messy process. But I think that the re- the way I did th- this time, that, that way of writing from a class and from a spoken word enabled me to make it much more conversational mm-hmm. because the way we write to a page is different from the way we speak to an audience. Yes. And so that, that communication style was always there in that other writing. And it, it just helped me to be no, it was very conversational you know,
1: readable and accessible, I feel like for everyone.
0: So it's a class, but yeah. in a fun way. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Speaking of so, looking at you know trade versus scholarly books, we know the debate within academia about you know whether people should publish trade books or books for the you know public, general public versus only academic. Um, obviously, we're on the side of publishing you know books for that are accessible for to everyone, right? We don't need to be an Egyptologist to understand all, a lot of this data material. Um, so why do you think it's important to communicate to the public in this way? Well, obviously doing a podcast, you give lectures to the public. Um, it's obviously yeah. a big part of your, your uh, you know, goals, your career goals. So you know, why push back against you know, certain people in academia who don't see the value in such things?
0: I mean, the way she's answering the que- asking the question <laughs> means that Jordan knows that I have received much pushback amongst my colleagues for writing said trade books, and she But it's like it correct. doesn't count
1: on your tenure thing, right? Or it, you know, it kind counts of in a weird does. way. It
0: kind of does, but it doesn't count as much as, it's a not an easy slam academic dunk. Academic book, no. yeah. And,
1: well, and it's like there's debates on Twitter, you see yeah. about people wanting blogs to count, because you put a lot of effort into writing, even like Twitter threads. Yeah they're well-researched cited, you know, blogs can be well-researched cited. Like why can't those count? Yeah. In a similar, yeah, as something.
0: It's funny because if I put my energy and I have a reasonable amount of energy, if I put all of that energy into academic writing and only academic writing, a whole lot of jargon, whole shit ton of jargon mm-hmm. and made it as complicated and difficult as possible, I think that I could have become a I don't know, seen, seen as some sort of amazing professor of very complicated systems. And I could have done that. But I don't to find it, means I end, don't find it end. interesting. And also if I, if I you, it's because I'm anti-authoritarian in, in nature, that's, I am an anti-authoritarian by nature, right? So yeah. if that's what I wanna do, then these trade books are a way of speaking truth to power in my world mm-hmm. by not agreeing to participate in that system in the way that's set up and thank God, I teach at UCLA, which appreciates and yeah. values certainly at the very top the trade books that I do produce. Mm-hmm. My peer scholars and colleagues do not always feel the same way, yeah. but um, but the deans and the provosts they, they think that that kind of outreach is important and necessary. And um, what I think amongst yeah you know younger scholars,
1: it's changing yeah a lot I think. So. Yeah,
0: but you know those younger scholars that go deep into jargon and deep into theory, not that there's anything wrong with theory, but it's a, the way you do it, right? Not
1: making it accessible, yeah.
0: Right, or, or who, you know, I'm editing a but volume, I feel like they right? feel
1: pulled into that, like, to be respected or yes. to get some clout, they have yes. to, like, dive deep into the academia side of things, how and much if they shame. Do anything else you get shamed. Yeah,
0: how much shame do you feel for not knowing certain languages, not being able to speak certain languages? Mm-hmm. How much intellectual shame do you feel that's a daily apart the daily part of our our lives. And how often do you feel like well, we, we're doing this volume with I'm doing it with with Danny and Nadia. Yep um an edited volume about Egyptian social history and we have some articles in there where people have Latin quotes or they just quote in the German and we're like I was
1: coding in French
0: and you guys were like translate no it. it's and gotta I was be like, okay. it's gotta be accessible <laughs> yeah, right French, yeah. but at my first book <laughs> has all of the quotes do. in German yeah. or French or whatever don't
1: translate everyone knows it. right oh, yeah. everyone
0: should know it right but we're now entering a new time period in which accessibility is the game yep. it's the key and and so now we are not doing that anymore. And it's a really interesting difference. Um, everything is political, everything and in academia too, how we publish, how we write, whom we include, all of these things are incredibly political. So the, the trade books, you can't get more political, um, but I feel I have something to say. Mm-hmm. And I feel that what, I learn about the ancient world is relevant to the modern world and I'm sick to death of the anti-intellectualism and presentism that says that antiquity doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. This is how authoritarians manufacture identity streams that exclude people, they use antiquity. And if we don't talk about it and or we pretend the ancient Egyptians were so different from us, we would never have a Pharaoh. Well, I'm gonna mess with that and say, so you think
1: you don't have a Pharaoh?
0: Okay. Let's discuss that, yep. and that's interesting to me. Um, it makes
1: me think of your recent Facebook post about Rome and how that, like, just the comments on that.
0: Which one? What did I?
1: About like Rome not being used by you know white supremacists. Oh uh, yeah, this kind of.
0: Um, what end. was it? The manufacturing of a of a white Rome. Yeah, white Rome. Yeah. And for it was white like, power. People
1: were so upset.
0: Yeah, they were so upset. They're like, "Don't take my white Rome from me." Yeah. I need it to be white, and they're like, "It was never. We know it's not white, but it, yeah, it is." Yeah.
1: So or how it's used um, yes um getting into the book a little you start off by talking about being a recovering egyptologist yeah why do you use the term or how would you then label yourself it's so, not an egyptologist
0: so the way that i wrote that i tried to bury it deep in the texts it just like have it a little be a little yeah. throwaway at the end of a sentence somewhere and my editor read it and she's like um Kara, you've buried the lead. This is the way it should start, and I'm like, don't make me make it the first sentence because then it's kind of a throwdown against well, my that's field.
1: Yeah, I'm like, ah, I have to ask a question about this now. Uh, yeah,
0: um, well, if we're going through sea changes for everything, and we're discussing what it means to be an American, and what kind of clothes we should wear, and even the political, even the weather is political, then we also need to discuss our fields.
1: But I think it's all the more relevant, right, we see humanities not getting funded as much as usual, departments, Sheffield's archaeology department getting closed officially, as of a couple days ago, yesterday. Um, So it's like, are there even going to be NELC departments in the future? So is it useful to even, you know, have, label yourself an Egyptologist instead of, you know, an ancient historian or a social historian looking at the ancient past and I
0: mean, you know, my social media has me as Egyptologist Egyptologist, and it's, and I, um, Amber and I tried to change it. You remember, I tried to change Karakuni Egyptologist on Facebook. Well, that's when I was making my website. I was like, how do
1: I label myself? Yeah, I was like, well, if you do
0: it on Facebook and you start a profile, it's so hard to change. We kind of gave up. If anyone knows how to do this, let
1: us know. Well, I think you're also so well known as Karakuni Egyptologist. It's,
0: yeah, the, now there's all these other Egyptologists out there. Yep.
1: Um,
0: there's all these Professor X Egyptologists. Yep. I'm like, oh shit, I started, a, started a trend. Um, and I was just trying to differentiate my private versus yep. my public. Um, but yeah, so the, the Egyptologist thing, it, it's there in my social media as Egyptologist. And then I start out this book by saying I'm a recovering Egyptologist. So there seems to be kind of a an incongruence there, which is interesting. And essentially what I'm dealing with and I think what our entire field is dealing with and certainly what you as graduate students are dealing with is what do we want to be when we grow up? What is our field about? What what difference does it make to call it Egyptology versus social history that uses Egyptian sources as data? Mm -hmm. I think it makes a big difference. And I think
1: that- Once after finishing the book, it's very clear why well, what did you what did you get? Tell so me just that, you know, by saying you're an Egyptologist, you're ignoring all the authoritarianism, the patriarchy and you're you're bamboozled by the the shiny gold and the, the pyramids. And you're in the position to say, oh, it doesn't matter yeah. that like maybe Khufu or Akhenaten or Ramses were awful authoritarian leaders. I just want to study like these texts and ignore all the implications of these things yeah. and where today you, we don't have the luxury of doing that because it's, you know, it's affecting people's lives and, you know, so we shouldn't do it for the past either. We should recognize these things.
0: Being an Egyptologist is navel gazing, it is narcissistic, and it is apologist. And it is apologizing for an authoritarian regime that was extraordinarily unequal in its makeup.
1: And it, it makes me think like the intermediate periods are actually the periods of like, more equality and, yeah, you know, more people had more stuff. Maybe, but then we don't want to study it because it's not as flashy and yeah. You don't
0: see, well, you know that at UCLA we're becoming a bit. We have created a niche yeah. in intermediate period studies, which is which is pretty interesting. And those time periods of collapse are mm-hmm. government collapse, social collapse, however you want to define that, are really interesting. Um, not that there's no um, bloodshed and tears but to say when things are centralized there's no bloodshed and tears is ridiculous too for whom yep. <laughs> what are we talking about and so that's if you're just
1: looking at the court
0: yeah fair but yeah
1: for the rest of the people
0: but you know we get seduced by it. we want to look at the pretty pyramids the pretty statues the pretty temples yep. and those things are not made by and large during an intermediate period mm-hmm.
1: um but it's just thinking about how statues are being discussed today mm-hmm. And then to then go to Egypt and just be like, Oh, look at this pretty statue and ignore mm-hmm. all the other contextual issues that also probably were happening. Yeah, back then. Yeah, when we think of how statues are used today, there's a disconnect and I think yeah. the movement is to make these things connect.
0: But you you raise at the beginning of this a really interesting and problematic point, which is that in this time period of anti intellectualism when the humanities are getting cut to the bone if not eliminated in, in certain universities and, and countries and places. Um, you know, Japan doesn't have any public humanities at public universities. It's just gone. Really? Google it, oh. and um, and so private universities, yes, Crazy. but not at their public universities. And um, it's like,
1: think about our undergrads who take most. We all, get our yeah. class like we get most of our students by taking like a gen ed. Yeah, you and know, they're all STEM how,
0: students coming
1: to take our and my they think Egypt's awesome, super interesting, yeah. but they don't see the relevancy of it, or what can I do with this? What job can I get?
0: to to actually major in it or study it as a thing it's so true um
1: so in the midst of that
0: anti-humanities intellectualism for me to say that I'm a recovering Egyptologist and then go against my own field smacks many of a disingenuousness uh, is it it, that I'm not protecting and supporting my field which I get But but do you want to I don't want to protect and support the field as it is no yeah. that's the point and this is what we talk about at yeah. ucla all the time because ucla doesn't really fit in the traditional egyptology of the rest of the united states if not the world and we we train in a in a different way that is um well how do you see it as being different compared to you came from chicago yeah, with the so masters like just
1: non-traditional of like language heavy focus teaching the Typical narratives. I feel like yeah. we're taught to always question and be yeah. really critical, and have you know very cross disciplinary. I think in most in in a lot of ways, in I think archaeology theory, art history, yeah, um, cross cultural. A lot of people. I feel like a lot of our a students. A lot of people are doing cross cultural, um, but not in like new, maybe interesting ways. This
0: is a difficult conversation because we don't want to take down any of yes. our colleagues or programs, many of which are excellent, but we just know we don't fit <laughs> we don't
1: it's not we're not and ivy. that's okay
0: we're not ivy it's not this like
1: long tradition um, of yeah egyptology departments yeah. a lot of them have you know a gig specifically for
0: or an epigraphic yeah, survey some type or their, something you know, like that um but anyway yeah the more classics
1: like i Egypt- would yeah not to bring in class but
0: that recovering Egyptologist comment starting out the book with that is a throwdown, and I'm going to get some flack for it so yay I that'll be it. fun um but let's see what other colleagues have
1: to say I think it will I think so anger. I think you you tease it but you have to read the whole book and then reading the epilogue the conclusion chapter it comes full full circle
0: but in, in, a, in a nutshell, I'm not even talking about the colonial racism yeah. that is the core of Egyptology as a field. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about what it means to be an apologist for an authoritarian regime. To study. To celebrate yeah. it. To celebrate in its beauty and mm-hmm. its productions and, and its creations. To celebrate Ma'at, the, the order of an Egyptian state not as law and order that is imposed but as something that helps create cultural cohesion in a positivist light that i want to mess with mm-hmm. and and had a great deal of fun doing
1: <laughs> so yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: so speaking on that so you know throughout the book and in the title and also you you're making a lot of analogies between modern day stuff and in ancient egypt so why do you think we can use or why did you uh, besides the fact that you're a trained egyptologist why use ancient Egypt to understand you know, authoritarianism, inequality today? Why use the past, I guess, in general to yeah. look at these modern day issues that we're going through?
0: Well, as you know, being in the classroom yourself, teaching ancient Egypt, it allows the student to look at something that is not their own world from a distance with some distance and sterility so they can look at it and examine it uh, as something, not a part of their own life. They can judge it. Yeah. There's a separation. They can get in there. It's like, you can see somebody else's problems in their family Mm -hmm. from afar at a party in a snapshot way better than you can deal with your own family's issues, right? Because that separation helps you. So Egypt affords us that. Egypt also affords us 3000 years of ups and downs, which is super useful because we've got like 250 years of nothing, maybe 400 if we include the very beginnings of this American nation state. Um, But it's it's a blip compared to what we can work with for ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the reason I like to use Egypt is because I've been told and many academics hold to the idea that they cannot be political with their work that these people are different from us, that we cannot impose our Westernisms and our modern politics on the ancient world. And if we do so, it is immoral, it is wrong, it lacks rigor, it's very problematic. I think that the more we separate ourselves from the ancient Egyptians, the more we engage in a silent racism that makes the ancient Egyptians other. I wanted to break this down in a way well, we have the same DNA, we have the same social systems, these things are not that different. We live in the same agricultural complex bureaucracy. Same thing by a different name. Yes. Yeah. So, and and when you read some of these ancient bureaucratic texts, you're like, oh my God, they're just like us, they're counting shit, they've got their mm-hmm. bureaucrats, they've got their guy who doesn't want to take responsibility, whatever it is, but I wanted more humanity coming from the ancient Egyptian side and interacting with all different historical discourses. Mm-hmm. So. And you know most of my examples being an expert of northeast africa the mediterranean world are from that Mm -hmm. part of the world but and i pull in many american American examples because that's the other place i know best i'm not pulling in a lot of ancient chinese examples it's not something i know as well um though i'm sure somebody else could
1: current events yeah Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. but um i take this one seriously and i'll get criticized for it again and i'm sure this book somebody will call it universalist as as uh the woman who would be king was called by Christina Riggs in the Times Literary Supplement. Um, And it's akin to calling somebody racist by saying that you're imposing your Western ideals, morals upon an ancient society that wouldn't have felt the same way. And I say, no, I think that we actually have to pull these things in.
1: There are, are some things that are, Well, there is no
0: way that you or I or anybody in this world can look at anything in history at all without without imposing anything. So it's ridiculous to say that the reason we study history is not to impose Mm -hmm. at all. It's all an imposition. And to say that the stories that we that we tell that we think think are not political is ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly the discourse we are all having right now, Mm -hmm. that American history, world history is political in favor of the white patriarch
1: a narrative yes
0: and now we're returning it to indigenous women children um Mm -hmm. enslaved people and and so on and so forth and that needs to happen more and more so
1: um i'll continue to do it (laughs) at least for me you know beyond that just having a modern analogy makes it more understandable you go oh okay like i get it what you're saying about something maybe you you know, the average public maybe doesn't know who the Third is, but if yeah. you then compare him to something Barack Obama did yeah. or Bush or yeah. Trump, then they go, oh, okay, I understand this relationship between the leader and the elites. Well, and let me take this- it
0: one step further. I think it's actually rather racist to separate these mm-hmm. ancient peoples and to say, Oh, their system was magic and mystery and so mm-hmm. different from anything that we all would religion. do all religiously oriented and and so foreign and strange and we can't ever really truly understand it to do that is to make them into almost non people and I can't, I can't engage in that discourse any longer mm-hmm. and this this is the thing this is why I'm a recovering Egyptologist in the first line, because I engaged in all of that that's, that's... how I was trained that's how training begins and you're broken down and you you learn to do things in a different way. But why was I attracted to ancient Egypt in the first place? Because I like the shiny pretty things. Mm-hmm. I think Amenhotep pyramids. the third is gorgeous. Yes. I think pyramids are awesome. I am attracted to what the patriarchy can produce. If I can be attracted by it, then you can, then we all can. And then we all need to look into ourselves and think about how why? a pretty temple can get us to go, Oh yeah, I have no human rights and everyone's getting arrested or to forget the fact that
1: you don't have this yeah
0: but i have a pretty temple so i guess it's okay and i get to participate in that nationalism yeah so i guess it's okay then but how much hold it has on us when colin kaepernick kneels for our political cult which is no different from any ancient roman imperial cult and those things need to be equated more Mm -hmm. often in my opinion anthropologically.
1: totally agree. uh you so why do you think we're, you know, inherently drawn to monarchies, authoritarian regimes? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, why do you, you, in the introduction, you go through a, all kind of the positive aspects, yeah. Yeah. where in like, a perfect world, Yeah. with a morally just person, having a monarch would be the best political situation, one person in control, making perfect decisions for everyone, Yeah. but it never actually plays out that way, because we're not perfect. you know who was
0: just here the other day jonathan winterman Mm -hmm. was here and he was saying why he couldn't watch avengers movies because it's all just watching your benevolent dictators decide who's committing a crime and what their punishment should be and how to deal with all of these things and um i was like oh when you put it that way um now i feel bad about watching avengers (laughs) movies but it's the same kind of thing um i think uh when there's extraordinary amounts of change which god knows there is right now when we don't know what the future holds and god knows everyone would is trying to figure that out whether religiously or secularly um it feels comfortable and good to have a fatherly figure watching out for but you is it
1: because we were raised in the patriarchy that we want then the fatherly figure of our culture
0: i don't know the answer to that you know what i mean i yes i know exactly what you're saying like
1: if we were raised in a different Set up, would we not look to having yeah. one single leader?
0: I mean, I guess you would uh, to answer that question, I would have to look to a hunter gatherer society that still existed on this planet within the last hundred years and look at a time period of crisis and how, how people they reacted, how there yeah. was the, the rea- what the reaction was like. I suppose one could look to Native American peoples being destroyed, culture being taken away, and how they reacted. Yeah. Um,
1: but I'm mean, even thinking like Rome, like they had, you know, their, their, their council of elders in charge, but then when push came to shove, they would elect a yeah. dictator for a short period of time, yeah. which then, you know, eventually became crisis is always full. the way to get yep. those
0: emergency powers to get the, the father figure to come mm-hmm. in and take care of yep. you, right? Authoritarianism that one. allows quick change, it allows you to pivot and turn fast, at least that's what we think. And in the short term, it actually does. I'm going to I need this. Let's go do it. And we well, you think create about these short term powers Congress
1: and how long it takes stuff to get yeah. pushed through, because they yeah. have to get you know, all the
0: arguing and bickering three and fourths of, of the
1: people to all agree on something. Well, and how often but if you do, just had one person, you could just make the decision. If
0: you follow human induced climate change at all, mm-hmm. and you look at how horrific it is to get the United States Congress to do anything about climate change, yep. and then you look at and I'm not saying China's Great on this, but having an authoritarian regime, okay, look at a place like Singapore, right? Having an authoritarian regime saying we're going to do it this way, and affecting change very quickly and imposing it yeah. from the top is something that is very seductive. And, um, and I'm not saying that democracy is awesome either, because what we've made out of democracy is really just an oligarchic, patriarchal, unequal capitalist bullshit. So I don't think that um, I'm not here to say, Oh, but we all want democracy. Cause I think when we created wh- whatever this form of democracy is that we have created not. is not winning. It is not successful. And so I'm not saying that that's what we protect at all costs. I'm saying that we have been in a patriarchal condition for 10,000 years, which is not that long mm-hmm. for human beings. We've been on this planet as homo sapiens mm-hmm. sapiens, arguably for 250,000 years. Yeah. And 10,000 years is nothing. So, if we have had that agricultural revolution, we had an industrial revolution, maybe we had a sexual revolution, but I'm not sure. I guess we're here, so yes. And so will there be another revolution? There must be, I think. And it's what we're all talking about in every news article and every classroom discussion and every time we talk about Bezos or whoever going up into space it's about the next human revolution and what one of we my will questions become. for the
1: next episode is, is it really you have and last chapter is like breaking up with the pharaoh and I was like how do we break up with the space He's <laughs> I mean, like how do we do it
0: oh my goodness I put on uh, my Facebook not long ago I said I guess the Patriarch and I was a Jeff Bezos whatever yeah. or, or what's the other guy whoever going um, into space
1: uh virgin atlantic um, virgin
0: atlantic dude branson branson. Um, branson. and i said i guess the patriarchy has to jump the shark before we can smash it and and i have a pretty international facebook following and some dude from turkey was like i don't understand this in translate makes no sense <laughs> <Jump> the shark. <laughs> and so i in a shark week i did a jump the shark wikipedia and i attached it and i yeah. said it's from a 1960s television show or is it 70s because Happy Days was on a long time. Oh, Happy
1: Days! It's from Happy
0: Days when Fonzie jumped the yeah. shark in Hawaii. But anyway, so I'm like, this is why. And sorry, it's an American expression. Yeah. I I guess Brits might understand it now. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah,
1: that would probably translate weird. Um,
0: but a lot of people tried to uh, mansplain how useful space technology is for all really of useful. our for my well being
1: burning those fossil fuels
0: exactly for
1: 30 seconds of yeah. weightlessness yeah very useful
0: so it's good i'm glad that space technology is helping our homeless situation uh-huh. in or los angeles
1: people in yemen starting. yeah
0: exactly really um, useful for and them. all of the they're really happy yeah <laughs> thank you space technology <laughs>
1: uh, yeah yeah it's really awful so turning back to why our author- authoritarian regimes are good or why yes. we're drawn to them. Not okay, good.
0: Um, I think that authoritarian regimes set up an ideology very cleverly, that, and Egypt excels at this, in allowing people to feel that they are participatory in some element so of So that's this. what I'm
1: thinking. It has something to do with us at some point choosing to live in societies that are bigger than the amount of people we can know ourselves. Yeah. And so we have to then have a form of representation. Right. We're not living in like just twenty person communities where we're all related and I know all of you. I can trust you. We have a relationship. No. no, no. We're choosing to now live in big cities. Right. Where I can't know ninety nine percent of the people. Right. So then you need to all agree upon or elect someone who then is representative of
0: but there's a community looking
1: out for you. Yeah, there's a
0: communal ideology that everybody agrees is correct that involves everything from the morality of your women folk the differing morality of your men folk the morality of your children the the way that a father should behave and take care of his family and that morality largely goes unquestioned in these places and then there's a morality of how you work with your higher ups how you work within a hierarchy how you are expected to be grateful when somebody gives you a job Mm -hmm. or, um, hands, it's not like, oh, you're giving me some crumbs and you have all the money. It's, there is a, there is a, um, uh, what's the word? Um, not paternalistic, um, patronage involved. So there are systems of patronage Mm -hmm. in which we're all supposed to behave certain ways. And the ancient Egyptians, you know, they communicated mostly to other elites, King and elites, that top 5%, maybe even less, but, why build big? Why build a huge pyramid? Why build a massive colossal statue or a pair of statues? Why build obelisks if you're not also communicating to the masses and you want the masses to be a part of this thing too? Why make a hieroglyph this big and this deep into a stone wall if you're just communicating yeah. with your elites? You don't need to do that. And those that hieroglyphic system and the temples and the statues and the pyramids, those are hieroglyphs. They're all hieroglyphs. It, it is a way of making people feel they're connected to something that they can almost read it. They're, all, they're a part of it, yep. but they're not. And it's- that, that... Or that the king's doing it to
1: keep things- Okay, so not exactly. order. and so you know you're not starving because exactly. the king's doing his job correctly, so you should be happy and let the king have I guess, a big giant tomb. And- in the
0: same way that I was mansplained, that the space technology was gonna help me yep. and trickle down the to me thing. and how much good. The pyramid's was doing. for you. The pyramid is for me and the temple is for me and the statues are for me because what the king is doing, it may not be space, te- it is kind of space technology, he is talking to the gods, yep. he is there intercessing with the gods, making sure that the Nile flows as it should, the sun rises and sets, everything happens as it should, he is going to say only I can fix it, right? only I can bring you all of these things and cultish. And when you create that ideology, people are like, oh my God, we better get in line. We better make sure the King has what he needs. We're a part of this, this churning wheel of a system too. And if we opt out, it's all going to fail. And the Egyptians in the ancient world, I think excelled better than any place at creating a cultural cohesion of getting most people, not all people, but most people to uncynically participate
1: buy into the system
0: to to be co-opted into Mm -hmm. this system and to get what they could out of it and
1: i feel like once it's in motion it's yeah it's easy to just keep yeah i mean just let's take i
0: mentioned female morality take that one little thing this is an interesting point how hard is it to push back against the slut whore ideology of morality that is very recent 10,000 years old, at most, in most places, much younger, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that a woman has to be with, can only be with one man, that her sleeping around is hugely problematic for her own moral well being, that her body is a temple, that purity matters, that none of these things apply to the male, right? Virginity, all of these things. And even today, in which marriage happens later, if a girl goes to a party and sleeps with three guys, I mean, no one will stop talking about that. That kind of sexual license is highly problematized in today's society so that we can't even though this idea of sexual female morality was invented with the agricultural revolution with a woman whose womb needed to be bought and sold and marked we still even though we're moving away from that we cannot get rid of it it has such a hold over us that ideology and growing up you know when you lose your virginity who you're going to date how careful you're going to protect yourself all of these things this is um that ideology goes deep into your psyche and you are trained mm-hmm. and how, how do you how do you just discard that and these these are well, not easy I just things. even
1: like gender norms like yeah. little kids are so good at being like that's for boys or that's for girls yeah. like they pick up on it so quickly yeah and even if you're trying to be more like gender fluid and not say like oh blue is for boys pink's for girls the kids pick up like from tv from yeah they pick up on it so quickly and they'll fight you with it and you're like well no boy blue doesn't have to be for boys and they're like no blue is for boys and you're like okay like yeah.
0: julian's decided he likes pink so uh, like quickly because he wants to be anti-authoritarian though he's okay. one of the most boyish of the boys but that's but you know um yeah so that's what not until you get your older question
1: why we are drawn to authoritarianism, <laughs> oh, that's that's right. why we like it. Um,
0: that's right. Um, the well, patriarchy. gender norms fall into that, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, of course. Um, we want to do as we're it's told. All the... We want to stay safe.
1: We want to stay safe. I, so yes. one of my questions for the next part two episode was kind of all these things. And it's so much of this is based on fear,
0: mm-hmm. right? We don't want to opt out because if you opt out and you're the lonely dissenter, then they're going to come for you. You're going to be you disappeared or your family will be
1: harmed or the idea even just that okay maybe the status quo isn't great but what what if something worse yeah we try to mess with things and something worse happens or you give you know the idea that there's only so much power and if we make things more equal that somehow you will then have less and it will be worse for you
0: yeah so you build
1: up all these ideologies to rationalize with the you know, limited white, white men set are of, better or something. Yeah. With a limited yeah.
0: set of resources that are out there, how do you get to those limited resources the best? And if opting into white supremacy and telling yourself that's not what it is works for you and it works for many Americans right now, then that's what you might decide to do. And in the same way in ancient Egypt, if you opt into Ramses II's narcissistic ideology, if that's gonna work for you as somebody who is going to gain with social mobility, mm-hmm. even if you screw over a whole bunch of other people of your kind, so what, you know, we well, will is do Another
1: it. theme or a lesson to be learned is short-sightedness of mm-hmm. all these things are so short-sighted in your generation of, you know, how to one-up you and, okay, so we have generational wealth that will get passed down to your kids or what, yeah. but it's not, you know, long-term. It always yeah. ends up failing in some way. <laughs> I
0: loved playing in the book with short-term versus long-term repercussions and the short-term solution is create a war, um, or
1: give more power to the leader, give
0: more power, give more divinized power to the leader, which might actually pull more power to the elites, make the leader look bigger than he is, Mm -hmm. or for some Wasserth, the third, take down your elites, you know, just destroy them, make them slavish to you like Louis the, the 14th. And, um, The long term repercussions of all of those short term solutions were so interesting. So you we love to live in short term land, human beings can't do long term land very well, which is why, even though we see the climate failing around us, we continue to do our same stupid short term solutions. Right. And when we're studying history, we'll study like a little short. So if everything's the wave. Right. And I'm looking at the guys at the top of the wave, we're studying the short term moments at the top of that wave but you need the long-term examination to see how it's going to fall how the wave is going to crest and that's that's so interesting to me to see Mm -hmm. those um the the then
1: when you're living in it like we are today it's yes you can't it's it's but, in the future it hasn't happened yet but that's so. why we do
0: what we do yeah because we want to time travel we want to know what our short-term solutions are going to afford us in the future that is why we do what we do i it's think like we're all
1: just like anxious
0: yes we're all trying <laughs> so to we're figure like, out oh, what's go to the gonna... past
1: where we have all the answers like, yes yeah
0: go to the past so i know what's going to happen yeah. and this one's too big i don't well i do have my last chapter yes. which says what i think what could happen in a more hopeful vein yes um but we could destroy it all too let's find
1: that it'll be fun so, the book covers, we cover Khufu, Sinwazu III, yeah. Akhenaten, Ramses II, and Taharqa. Um, we'll talk more in depth on those uh, kings and bigger themes, broader themes, in part two. Um, but just to end this out, so when is it released? Where can we get it? Where can we pre-order? You can, good kings. okay, um, you can get it anywhere books are
0: sold. You make that decision, because even that is political, yes? So,
1: you know, bookshop.org is great yeah. for <laughs> buying books bookshop. or your local or. bookshop.
0: Um, and for, as for local bookshops, I have a deal with book soup, like soup that you eat here in Los Angeles on sunset Boulevard. And I'm going to go in when the book comes out probably before November 2nd, uh, end of October, October comes before November. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I get a little dyslexic, um, and sign books on mass and then send them to you. So if you order from book soup, you can get a signed copy. And if you put in the comments like a little inscription you know what you want it to say like um you know speak truth to power i don't care you know something for so and so (laughs) whatever and i'll sign it um with that stipulation in mind um and then we're going to keep talking about this right Mm -hmm. on all the social media uh here on on this podcast and um uh my newsletter audiobook <laughs> um i'm reading the audiobook, audiobook yeah good. they haven't booked it yet but i think i blocked out time have i amber in august amber says no <laughs> no i have i think so but i'm reading the audiobook Soon. you weren't i always read the audiobook so i'll be doing that i can usually crank out the audiobook in 4 days but i need 4 days to read so it's a, it's, a, it's going to be it's a 400 a page book, book yeah. as usual yeah. so yeah um
1: good so Anywhere books are sold, pre-order it. Look out for the audiobook um, and stay tuned for part two. Yay. We'll talk more in depth. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page, and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakuni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Kara